It's time for security now. Steve Gibson is back. He's refreshed. He's ready. He's going to talk about the Microsoft updates, security flaws, password leaks, and yes, your questions too. It's all coming up next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 360, recorded July 11th, 2012. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 147. Security Now is brought to you by Ford, featuring the MyFord Mobile smartphone app for electric vehicles. The MyFord Mobile app makes the electric driving experience fun and efficient. Learn more about Ford electric vehicle technologies at Ford.com slash technology. And by Carbonite Online Backup. Automatic, continuous, unlimited backup for your computer files. Just $59 a year. Try it free at Carbonite.com. Use the offer code SECURITYNOW to get two bonus months with purchase. It's time for Security Now. And uh, what a great opportunity. This is, you know, one of our most popular shows. Steve Gibson is here uh, of GRC.com, our explainer-in-chief. This is one of our most popular shows, and in fact, one of the few shows that's uh, numbers are going up and up consistently. And I have to think it's just people are more and more aware of the issues of security. Hey, Steve. Hey, Leo. It's great to be back with you after our two-week hiatus. Yes. And I do want to... Thank you for letting me do that, by the way. I'm not letting it happen again. Oh, no. Why not? I, I got... Well, I missed it, actually. It was like, wow, that it was odd not doing it. <laughs> and, and you know, all I need is a little hour of your time just to do a little time <laughs> skew. So um, never again. You're saying we will never miss another episode again. No, I, and maybe it was good that we did one just so that we broke our perfection. <laughs> well, I'm just going to say this. You're going to be fighting a, not me, but a person yeah. named Lisa and whatever, you know, you guys work out is okay with me. All right. <laughs> well, and someone <laughs> tweeted that we were okay until 2018. They've already figured out when the next time is. Oh, once every went, five years. That's good. That July, that July 4th falls on a Wednesday. So <laughs> it's like, okay. Oh, well, that's fine. In 2018, yeah. we'll take the day off. Uh, what? No. Oh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we'll discuss it then. All right. Actually, this this was an important week because of the hoorah, and I, I don't know if you plan to talk about it. In fact, I should run through your outline. I don't think you are going to talk about it, uh, of DNS it's the Changer. Topic, it's the topic of the entire next week ah. podcast because Paul Vixie, who is Love him. Extre- extremely well-known, yeah. he's a, one of the Internet pioneers. He's a, he's a co-founder of ISC. Uh, that are the creators of Bind, the leading DNS server. Um, he was very involved, it turns out, with the FBI's effort in really? doing it. Really? Well, then I can blame yes. him. And um, so... <laughs> I'd like to so, hear his explanation of why this was such a good idea. 
Uh, well, as a matter of fact, that's what we're going to do next week. Good. We're going to completely cover it. And what was interesting was, as you said, it was like this biggest non-event. I was, I was seeing CNN. The- CNN said there is a major virus out there, and it strikes on Monday. Yeah, and people were coming up to Morons. me, you know, like as they were hearing about it, saying, "Oh, Steve, do I have to worry about this? What's going to happen?" I'm, I'm told that there's like some horrible things going to happen. I said, "No." Nothing Idiots. is going to happen. Not this the people. Just... I don't blame people because they're getting informed by news sure. media that is stupid. Yeah, and people were being told that it was some malware that was going to strike them Crazy. rather than a six-month delayed reaction to something that it was pretty much by now a non-issue. But it's weird that it, it captured the amount of press that it did. But I was just disappointed that more people weren't angry at the FBI. But maybe you're going to convince me that this was a good idea. I think I'll be neutral on that topic. Okay. I'll be be the negative. (laughs) Uh, What captivated me was the things that Paul said and wrote that I'm going to share with our listeners next week. He had a lot of really interesting points to make. So I'm going to share that, and then we're going to get into a discussion. I have a huge respect for him, and of course, he's the father of DNS. So if he says it's a good idea, then I still don't believe it. And actually, he has a lot of good stuff about all of the recent... As I was digging into this, doing some pre-research for next week, I realized, naturally, he would have been very, very much out in front of the whole DNS filtering, SOPA, and all of that Ooh, yes. you know, nonsense oh, yes. oh, that, yes. that you know we have been dancing around with. So that's that's for next week. This week is Q and A number one forty seven. We've got uh, ten great questions. Actually, some surprises that I encountered as I was mm. going through the mailbag. So uh, we've got a, a, a great tip of the week to wrap it up, and something that surprised me a second to last, and. A bunch of things to talk about, but I just wanted, I, I got, there was so much reaction and mean, really withdrawal from, from us not having a podcast for our listeners last week that I was going to assure everyone that by hook or by crook, um, we'll, we'll make that not happen again. So, but it was kind of fun to have it happen once because, you know, whatever you say, Steve, <laughs> <laughs> however, before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about you and I, about uh, Ford Motor Company, our great sponsor. That is one reason we shouldn't take any time off because uh, the advertisers don't like to miss any days. Uh, they uh, are because they're busy. I was a couple of weeks ago down in the Silicon Valley at the Computer History Museum. What a great – if you never get a chance to – ever get a chance to oh, go I've, there. Oh, I've been through the whole thing. It's wonderful, spectacular. Uh, it was Gwen Bell, Gordon Bell's uh, uh, wife, who created that. With you know what I want to do, Leo, is bring those machines back to life. It bothers me that they're just sitting there cold. It's like, oh, come on, let's fix these. I know, really. God, that'd be so fun. They've, they've collected them all. There was, um, there was a room there where the original Space Wars machine was, and they had the big, you know, Space Wars, which was the first vector-based, first video game. It was a vector-based yep. space game from the 60s, and it was on a big, round cathode ray tube. And uh, they had the tube there. They had the controller there. They had the whatever it was, PDP-11 there that ran the game. It was kind of fun to see. But I, you're right. I don't know if it was running. Uh, it would be fun to try to resurrect those. Anyway, well, the reason we were there was for a Ford event, actually. It was kind of appropriate because Ford was opening its Silicon Valley offices. Uh, why, would, why would a car company, a 100-year-old car company, have an office in Silicon Valley? Well, because... 
Ford really is forward thinking. And um, they, they understand that something's happening in the world, in the digital world, and, and they believe it's a perfect marriage between uh, automotive technology and computer technology. But how do you capitalize on them, especially since there's this kind of impedance mismatch? Car technology moves much more slowly. The, the development cycle, as much as they've speeded it up, still is years compared to months for apps and so forth. So what they've done, I love this. And it's just, it, you know, when they said this to me, I said, oh, it was like a light bulb went on. They think of the car as a platform. See, platforms move more slowly. Operating systems, hardware systems move more slowly. But if you create a platform saying, we don't know how people are going to use this. We don't know what the future will bring. What we're going to do is build a platform with sensors and controllers and, most importantly, a programmer's interface, an API. And then we go to Silicon Valley and we say, here, we've created a platform. Let's see what you can do. And that's what they're doing. And that's what's so impressive uh, the uh, API is called AppLink, and uh, it gives you, as a developer, a chance to interact with the automobile to write software that takes advantage of things like Ford Sync. And they've also written their own app kind of as a demonstration. Um, if you, you know, you need to be a, a, using a Ford electric vehicle right now. That's the 2012 uh, Focus, the most fuel-efficient five-passenger vehicle in America. But uh, next year, the 2013 Energy will come out, the Fusion. That's the plug-in hybrid. And more and more of these are going to come out. And they take advantage of this app, this My Ford Mobile app, which is a, you know, I think it's more of a demo or a reference uh, product. It's on BlackBerry, Android, and, and iOS. It does things like, if you, <laughs> there's a button you press that says, where's my car? And it says, it's right here. <laughs> you can see the state of charge, how many miles you've gone, tips on uh, more, uh, you know, efficient usage. If you are uh, plugging it in, uh, you can be in the living room and you can say to the car in the garage, hey, don't charge until off-peak hours. The phone knows utility rates because there's an API for utility companies as well. Find charging stations, plan the most eco-friendly route. There's even, I love this, a website where the MyFord Mobile website where there's leaderboards for uh, people who've saved the most CO2 this week are <laughs> just love, I'm competitive. I love the idea. Um, really cool stuff. I want you to, here's the thing. You can test drive the app, but you've, in order to do that, you've got to go to your EV certified Ford dealer and uh, test drive the 2012 electric Ford Focus. Bring your smartphone with you, put the app on it, and you can try it out. It is very cool stuff. You can also go to Ford.com slash technology to see all the amazing things Ford is doing as a platform. It's just brilliant for development. It means that your car, your your Ford vehicle, will always be state of the art. We thank Ford for their support of uh, security now. Ford.com slash technology or visit your EV certified Ford dealer today. Another Patch Tuesday. It seems like it was just Patch Tuesday. I guess... Last month. That's because we skipped an episode, Leo. Oh, come on. Stop it. Jeez. You'd think, you'd think I let something die or something. It's like, come on. Oh, you didn't get the... You, you didn't hear from the listeners. Oh, I hear from the listeners. Yeah, but, Are you, you think I don't hear from the listeners? You think uh, no, they don't, don't contact me at the drop of a hat? Okay. I, I love so, hearing from them, but that doesn't mean they get their way every time. That's your we mistake. Did have, we did have a... Uh, next, the, the second Tuesday of the month yes. passed by just before the day that we skipped the podcast. And um, 
we had uh, finally the XML core services flaw patched. Well, this well. is something. Yes, that was this was the zero day exploit that that we've been talking about every week since it was revealed because it was revealed shortly before June's Patch Tuesday. Certainly not enough time for Microsoft to do anything, although they did put up one of their fix-it buttons, their, their you know, single-click fix-it. And I, I really strongly uh, advised all of our listeners to go push that button because we just don't need XML core services in you know, Internet Explorer for sites that we're visiting. We can live without that. This is, again, this is Microsoft's default-enabled approach, unfortunately. Um, so they've got that patched, plus um, 15 other problems of, you know, varying security from very... There, there was, like, uh, two problems with IE and something else with WebDAV or a database, something or other. So, you know, it's one of those just... Just do it. You know, I've I've done it on my various machines, and uh, and it's good that we've got finally got a correct fix to this XML core services problem. Now, the thing that was related to this that I just sort of shook my head over was Microsoft's security advisory number two seven one nine six six two. Now, that to me looks like not a date encoded in that, but probably advisory number two million. 719,662, because that feels like it's about the right number of advisories that we've had with Windows so far. Uh, and this one is vulnerabilities in gadgets could allow remote code execution. And there's another fix-it. This fix-it turns off the Windows Vista and 7 sidebar and gadgets. Just turns it off. It's like, whoops, we're sorry we ever thought that was a good idea. We're turning those off now. And I was like, what? What? And so quoting from Microsoft's advisories, that they, it says, Microsoft is announcing the availability of an automated Microsoft Fix-It solution that disables the Windows sidebar and gadgets on supported editions of Windows Vista and Windows 7. Disabling the Windows sidebar and gadgets can help protect customers from vulnerabilities that involve the execution of arbitrary code by the Windows sidebar when running insecure gadgets. In addition, gadgets installed from untrusted sources can harm your computer and can access your computer's files, show you objectionable content, or change their behavior at any time. What a nice technology. An attacker who successfully exploited a gadget vulnerability could run arbitrary code in the context of the current user. If the current user is logged on with administrative user rights, an attacker could take complete control of the affected system. An attacker could then install programs, view, change, delete data, or create new accounts with full user rights. Users whose accounts are configured to have fewer user rights on the system could be less impacted than users who operate with administrative user rights. Applying the automated Microsoft Fix-It solution we are announcing today, described in Microsoft Knowledge Base article, blah, 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 disables the Windows sidebar experience and all gadget functionality. So they're saying, whoops, we, uh, we're sorry about all those desktop gadgets that we were promoting so heavily whoops. for the last <laughs> many years. We've decided they're no good anymore. Yep. 
So just click this button, which we are in, we're proudly announcing, and they'll all go away. Now, <clears throat> I only miss one, and that's the gadget that tells me how many hundreds of days left I have of Windows XP support. I rest my case. So, Ooh, very good point. So <laughs> and then, of course, the big news that occurred, uh, dare I say, during our hiatus, was the Cisco Linksys router firmware fiasco. You have to call it that. These are two, this affected two brand new high-end routers, the EA3500 and the EA4500, which were first released in April. Um, they're, I mean, these are big, you know, as I said, high-end routers. The, the lesser of the two, the EA3500, is $140. Um, and that's an N750 dual-band gigabit USB Powered by, and this here's the here's here's the problem. Powered by Cisco Connect Cloud app enabled, and then its bigger brother at the top of the line is the EA forty five hundred, two hundred dollars for this sucker, an N nine hundred dual band gigabit USB DLNA media server, powered also by the Cisco Connect Cloud. Well, this is the new thing. This Cisco Connect Cloud that it was is causing the problem is behind all of this. What happened was, everybody bought these in April, and you know you're not going to have low end users probably spending between 140 and 200 dollars on a router. This is going to be your serious home networking guy that wants DLNA enabled media server stuff. I mean, so these these are people. My point is that knew what they were buying and why. And so they, doubtless, this is now, what, April, May, June, July, plugged it in, logged into its admin interface, and pushed a bunch of buttons and tuned it up. And if they're podcast listeners, if they listen to this podcast, they probably disabled uh, universal plug-and-play support if they know they don't need it or maybe statically mapped ports through in order to use um, the Xbox gaming through their router, you know, I mean, you know, d deliberately spend some time tuning it up, probably disable WPA, uh, you know, uh, 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 pin uh, use of the router. So, you know, you know, spend some time with it to get it going. Then <laughs> a couple weeks ago, without notifying anyone, Cisco autonomously in the background updated the firmware across really without asking without without any notice without <gasps> any that's notice not nice so that was what that means is all these routers were phoning home periodically that's the only way cisco would know where they were they were phoning home saying hi there i'm this fancy new router got any news and cisco said ah thanks for checking in Here's new firmware and sends the firmware down. Now, wow. I didn't even know they had that capability. Get this, Leo. It removed the admin interface. Oh, come on. So that then these high-end router customers, 
attempted to log on to their router and were told, oops, sorry, you need to go set up an account with Cisco Connect Cloud. In Come or- on. In I order- bought this hardware. You're making me do something? <laughs> in Holy order cow. to manage their own router. Oh, that's so, just evil. Well, it gets worse because then people looked at some of the fine print in the agreement that went with this that says, for example, and I'm quoting, I, snip, I, I copied and pasted this out of their license this morning. For example, if you download a media app, the service, that's capital S, you know, because attorneys were involved, service, will need to share information with the third party about what media content what? you have in your home network. Or if you download a parental control app, the service, again, giving you a big service here at capital S, will need to share information with the third party about what devices are inside your home network. Well, that's weird. Can so, you think of a reason why that would be needed? Uh, yeah. Anti-piracy is the only thing I can think of. Well, and and it also says when you use the service, we may keep tra- okay, and remember, using it is not optional. You 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 attempt to log on to your router and your you have only to. choice yeah. is to go create an account with Cisco Connect Cloud in order to then use web-based admin. And what they're selling is that you can remotely administer your router. So it's cross-device, it's web-based, meaning that you can use a smartphone from somewhere outside your home network to do stuff on your router. And it's like, okay, that can't possibly go wrong. Uh-huh, yeah. So Wow, I have so, one of those. I'm throwing it out right now. So they're saying... That's it. Goodbye. When you use the service, we may keep track of certain information related to your use of the service. Among other things, that data may include how much traffic is going through the router every hour and includes the Internet history from the home network. So basically, people have installed spyware boxes um, without knowing now, now, I'm trying to is, think because, you know, sometimes they do these terms of service because for a technical reason they need to be able to act. But I can't think of any technical reason why they'd need to know uh, any of the, your history. Well, you can, you can imagine the backlash Holy against cow. this as people dug into it and this, read these terms of service. This is clearly the, pi, the, the uh, Motion Picture Association of America, people like that. Well, right? it, the, 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 the most benign thing we could say is that it is some plan that cisco has for monetizing their customers in a new way well so you know they're 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 talking about selling aggregate information and and but i mean this looks like it's like they're saying they need to peer into your network and see what media you have and what devices you have or and why would they need my internet history what i don't that is that is just an flagrant uh, invasion of yeah. privacy. And the problem is they have access to it. They are the router that connects the internal home network to the Internet. 
everything as we know passes through it. You know, the good news is SSL doesn't, but for example, DNS queries do unless you're using encrypted DNS. So they're in a position with a powerful router to aggregate information. And we already know these things are phoning home because they all across every installed one spontaneously updated itself horrible to to do this so as a consequence of the backlash cisco quickly responded and then and put up instructions for downgrading these routers back to the previous firmware because users were so upset well, many many people simply returned them they said i'm not right. keeping this don't keep it because I, you know what that means they still could do this they have they have uh, un, un uh, you know, uh, yes, you don't know what the router access. is doing on the on yeah. the high on the outside on the WAN link. We have, you know, there's no way Shocking. to know. Not good. Shocking. Uh, I will never use another Cisco Linksys router again, and we won't yeah. use them in our enterprise. Um, that is uh, appalling, and I don't think that's a mistake. You know, there's a new trend going on, and I call <laughs> it. No, no, this I could. Mistake. This is this is not a mistake. I I call this the uh, Facebook mo. Facebook's pioneered this, and I'm seeing more and more companies do this. Which is, you do it even though you know it's wrong and bad. Yep. You apologize afterwards. You fix it for those who complain. Meanwhile, ninety percent of your customers I... never notice and just go along with it, and you well, get away with it. Basically, yes. Imagine all the people who have not logged into their router to discover what has happened right. to it behind their backs. Most people will, ne- or they don't care because they don't understand the ramifications. And yeah. Cisco knows that, as does Facebook, as do a lot of these companies. Now, this is the new MO in Silicon Valley. Shocking. Horrible. See what you can get away with. Yeah, well, just do it. Apologize afterwards. And right. most people will never notice anyway, so you will really will get away with it. And those who complain, you fix it for them. Yeah. Horrible. Well, I won't be using their stuff ever again. Yeah, I have an old a little Netgear that I'm quite happy yeah. with. So yeah, and a, and an older Belkin. So it's like, holy okay, cow, that is that is just shocking. Yeah, that's that's true malfeasance. So we had another four hundred twenty thousand uh, password hashes stolen. <laughs> I saw that. Jeez. Yeah, Formspring, <laughs> a social networking Q and A site, whatever that is. I kind of went there and. Yeah, I have an account but, there. It's yeah. um, you know Quora is better known. It's you people. You people will form swing. You can ask me a question and I can answer it. It's a Q and A form. Ask the net, like ask everybody. Or no, ask, ask like, specific people. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah. So Quora is you ask an open question, anybody can respond. This is more like Reddit's Ask Me Anything, where um, you say I'm here. What do you want to know? And you'll answer questions. So the good news is. They were hashed, and they were salted, and they were well hashed. Good. They weren't. They were not as well hashed as they could be. Oh. Their blog. In their blog, they said we were notified, and it's just really fun, or not fun, but it's interesting uh, to see how these companies find out. Because the first any of these companies know that this has happened is when they discover. You know, people tell them, oh, by the way, <laughs> apparently 420,000 of your, you thought they were secret, password hashes are out on the net that have been posted and people are rummaging around through them. So they said, we were notified that approximately 420,000 password hashes were posted 
to a security forum with suspicion from a user that they could be FormSpring passwords. The post did not contain usernames or any other identifying information. Of course, you know, the bad guys had those, but they were just posting the passwords to prove they had everything. So this blog goes on. Once we were able to, to verify that the hashes were obtained from FormSpring, we locked down our systems. Too bad they hadn't done that previously, I guess. <laughs> and began an investigation to determine the nature of the breach. We found that someone had broken into one of our development servers and was able to use that access to extract account information from a production database. We were able to immediately fix the hole and upgraded our hashing mechanisms from SHA-256 with random salts. So, okay, they were, they were implying good practice, to bcrypt to fortify security. We take this matter very seriously and continue to review our internal security policies and practices to help ensure that this never happens again. Now, bcrypt is not something we've spoken of directly. I've spoken of what it does many times because this is the, the password strengthening approach. What's sort of interesting about bcrypt is it's explicitly scalable that is you know we've talked about for example how i think ios was initially hashing you know iteratively hashing uh using so-called password-based uh, uh key derivation that horrible acronym pbkdf2 um ios was doing it i don't remember now like 2,000 times and now they're doing it 4,000 times and we talked about how a couple of weeks ago, LastPass added that, but in, but to existing customers, it was still set to zero by default. So we advised all of our of our listeners to go set it to five twelve, which I think is their recommended number, and and then they're now doing iterative hashing. The point is, it doesn't it doesn't actually create more security, but it lengthens the time that any kind of brute force cracking requires by that factor, by a factor of 512 or 4,000 or whatever. So the, the, the fact that, the, that FormSpring has switched to a bcrypt-based approach says, okay, they were good already, random salts, SHA-256, that's all good, and now they've decided, well, there, there is a little more we can do, so we're going to do that too. So um, you know, th this um, uh, there's really no egg on their face. It's not like the they they had a you know MD5 hashes as we recently saw. They were doing good hashing. Uh, random salts is 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 best practice for hash management. So you know, it's unfortunate those got loose. They immediately did, they immediately shut down logins. Required all users to change their hashes. Uh, using an email loop in order to reauthenticate themselves, and had to create new passwords. And they and they also posted at that time best policies for what constitutes good passwords. So you know I, they they acted as we would hope anyone could. Should you change your form screen, form spring password now? Should I? You have no you have no choice. You cannot log oh, in good. without Even doing better. so. Even better. Yes. So, so they immediately increase, Im improved their security and then required all of their users to use 
that improved security for the passwords which they are now storing in a password database, which they believe is more secure than, well, I'm sure it's more secure and hopefully it's secure enough to keep it from the bad guys. But speaking of that, something else happened that had a lot of people scratching their heads initially, and that is there was a massive attack across 50,000 websites that were defaced with the installation of the Black Hole Exploit Kit. Now, this is something we spoke of recently because, uh, for example, the XML Core Services um, exploit that we evolved vulnerability was turned into an exploit that was recently added to this Black Hole Exploit Kit, which is a popular hacking kit that that um, the Black Hat people are using in order to, for example, get into people's machines using unpatched vulnerabilities in 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 Windows. So, so people were saying, "Wait a minute how how did people get into fifty thousand websites?" There was initially not anything obvious that they had in common. They had completely different servers, some running Windows with IIS, many on Linux and Unix uh, running Apache or other web servers, um, different, uh, you know, uh, different uh, uh, automation. Some were running .NET, some active server pages, some, you know, PHP. So it's like this, it's very heterogeneous. But someone noticed they all had the same management software. They were using a, a, a system called Plesk, P-L-E-S-K, which I, is I've the, used that. That's excellent. Yes. It is the second most popular remote website, remote server management, yeah. you know, remote site management. It's a PHP-based sysadmin uh, tool. CPanel yes. is another one, yeah. CPanel is number one, most popular. Plesk is number two. Yeah. Turns out that Plesk had a known vulnerability that was fixed months ago. But before that, people were able to get in and, and acquire the, the server management passwords, which unfortunately <sighs> Plesk was storing in the clear. Oh, dear. So even after Plesk was updated months ago, the people used it pre-update right. that, that his bad guys got in, got the pa the management passwords, master management passwords for those servers. So when Plesk was updated to fix the problem, it, it you know the passwords had already left the barn. Mix a metaphor. <laughs> the password has left the building. <laughs> password has left. Yes. So anyway, what happened was uh, uh, fifty thousand websites were defaced, oh. and what people need to do i am i imagine this is old news for anyone who actually is in charge of any of those websites you have to change all the passwords because yeah. that's you know the bad guys have got your passwords using a vulnerability in plesk that was you know is now old so there you go yeah the real problem with plesk is your uh, your provider usually has to update that and then they often are slow to do so. Correct. So you may, I don't you think may. they'll be slow this time. <laughs> Maybe not. Yeah. This is, yeah. well, and it's a simple thing to do. They up, they, you know, they update it and it fixes that for all their customers who are using remote admin on, you know, on their services. So that's a good thing. Now I have to go a little bit off topic. I'll make it brief 
because we've got Q&A to get to. But I just did want to mention a couple things. Uh, I tweeted some links just now for the podcast. So those are, are at my SGGRC feed in Twitter. So twitter.com slash SGGRC. One is a wonderful Prometheus parody. Uh, <laughs> and it's Prometheus has been out long enough that I can now, it's a, I can now it's, release the Spoiler, oh, Leo. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. You have to see it if you haven't, Leo. It I is, haven't. It is the essence of what we were talking about was disappointing about the movie, you know. And so this is a, you know, a sort of a pep talk, uh, you know, pre-landing consultation of somebody in charge to this group of, you know, we see that they're not that impressive when they actually get on the ground. <laughs> yes. Uh, and it's it's wonderful. So I, I won't try to... Unfortunately, it, 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 I'm looking for Prometheus parodies on YouTube, and there's dozens. Yes. And, I was, <laughs> and what I tweeted was, this was my favorite of the so many deservedly created parodies. <laughs> I guess it kind of begged to be parody. Yeah, you just can't pro, you can't tweet, you can't Google <laughs> Prometheus parody because you're, you're, there are too many of them. But this one... That, that in in that I have in my link it's is a pre prequel is, is what they call it the pre prequel that's the one yeah the pre prequel it's well because Prometheus was an alien pre an alien right. prequel so before so the prequel is, there's the prequel yeah that's yeah. oh it's just wonderful so <laughs> people will love that um, on Monday I saw the Amazing Spider Man and I it's interesting as I've talked to people about it many people have heard it was bad I loved yeah. it. Oh, good. So I just want to say, okay. I loved it. It's I I liked all the Spider-Man movies. I liked the new Batman, and so and I should mention that this is a restart of the series in the same way that the new Dark Knight series is a re a restart. Um, it so it you know starts with Peter Parker before he's been bitten and and so forth, and I thought it was the most effective three D I've seen. I of course um, Avatar and then. Prometheus in 3D. Uh, Prometheus in 3D just didn't do it for me. But this was, it wasn't overdone, but the depth of, I, I was conscious of the depth of field photographically. The things that were further away were also nicely out of focus. So you were, you knew what you were supposed to be looking at and it was kind of right there in the middle and things closer to you were out of focus. I, they, I just, they did a really nice job. So if anybody, my, the point of bringing this up is if anyone has been dissuaded because they heard it was bad, eh, I loved it. I thought it was great. So um, I just want to say that. And speaking of great, two non-sci-fi things, The Newsroom, which is a new series on HBO Wow, I, I love Aaron Sorkin, and um, I, I, you know, I I like The West Wing. It was that that voca that that dialogue that normal people don't actually speak. And in fact, he was interviewed by Colbert last week, and and Stephen Colbert said, "You know, you realize, Aaron, nobody talks that way." And he says, "Yeah, I know." But anyway, I I watch each episode twice. It's so good. It's a it's a sometimes you have to. They talk so fast. Oh, it's just, it's just, <laughs> you just know, you'll miss wonderful stuff. dialogue. I just love that. And then, and then just a blast from the past. After 20 years, Dallas is back. <laughs> no, don't um, tell me you love Dallas. Oh, I <laughs> do. And Larry Hagman still has it. He's in it. He, He's not Larry JR. Hagman. Yes, JR is back. 
and Patrick Duffy and Linda Gray and they Ray and they brought they, now they of course have had kids and the kids are grown up now and the show is mostly about them. Well, but, you better go get them now because you're in trouble, Jr. Anyway, it those two shows are the top two new dramas of the season. Both have already been renewed for a second season. There will HBO has already committed to a second season of the news of the newsroom, and Dallas is the number one show. Now running six, uh, nearly seven, six point nine million viewers per episode. Wow! So anyway, I, I watched it in the what, old days. What channel is Dallas on? It's on TNT. All right. Well, I will have to watch it. Ah, uh, there's our music. <laughs> is it? It's not the same theme, is it? Yes. They kept the theme. Yes. So it's pure nostalgia play then. Yeah. Because this is the the set most seventies theme ever. Wow, oh, that's funny. I'm gonna have to watch it. I haven't uh, haven't been watching that. So yeah, it, wow. it, I have to say now, Larry has Jr. has flown off in a helicopter and left John Ross sort of in charge, which I realized is the way he negotiated his contract. He says, "Okay, I'll be there for the first three episodes to get this right, thing going." Right, right. But then I'm you he know is, he I've is got, eighty years old. <laughs> yes, and but I kidding you, Leo. It is just so fun to see him still. I mean, he even. Even here's the new old... here's the new theme. They did update it. They, ah. they at least got rid of the uh, waka 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 guitar there. <laughs> oh yeah, this is much more 21st century. But it's the same theme, same melody. That's great. Yep. Wow. Wow. You know, and even even when he was the colonel, was it a colonel on uh, on I Dream of Genie? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Major. He was he Major was, Nelson. Major Nelson. I think he, he was became a colonel good, later. He was a good actor. Yeah, Hagman's a yeah. good actor. Yeah, he really is. Anyway, I now just if they I redo wanna... I Dream of Genie, I'll be watching. <laughs> as long as they don't use Barbara Eden. I think well, she's probably yeah. old too far. Hey, hey, astronaut Nelson. <laughs> I think I okay, left my teeth in just, the capsule. We don't want to see her in her genie outfit, mm, though. Dear. We just have her oh, pay, maybe in a nice pantsuit. That would be good. <laughs> oh, dear. So, okay, <sighs> finally, sci-fi books. I wanted to let our – I know that many people – did follow my recommendation for the Lost Fleet series, which I really liked because remember that we had we had this uh, Commander Geary who was who was a hundred years in suspended animation. He he they they found his capsule, brought him you know revived him just in time to use his his long lost knowledge of 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 large scale fleet maneuvers in order to to rescue the alliance. And so we had six books, Dauntless, Fearless, Courageous, Valiant, Relentless and Victorious. Then we ran out. Uh, some people may have been glad. Um, but he has a new series called Beyond the Frontier. I just finished yesterday Dreadnought, which is the first of those, and then Invincible I have in hardback because it wasn't available for Kindle, but it is now. So for any listeners who want more, I just want to let everyone know that there's two more books now out. I'm less excited about them. Uh, there was much less battle and much more feeling that, unfortunately, the author, uh, Jack Campbell, I think is his name. I didn't write it down, but I think it's Campbell. Um, 
I'm a little, it feels a little bit like he's stretching it out. Like, okay, come on, let's get going. Let's, you know, it's like way political. And I, you know, this was a little, I was impatient as I was reading Dreadnought. So I I'm, don't recommend it highly. Um, and so there you go. Um, I did get a nice note from a listener, Brian Semmingson, who's in Indio, California. He said, hello, Steve. I'm an IT manager professionally. So that means I'm the IT fix-it guy for everyone who knows me. And, of course, many of our listeners and you, Leo, know how that is. Oh, yeah. And that brings me to Spinrite. A family friend's PC would freeze on the XB splash screen every time he attempted to boot it up. The only thing I was told was that the computer froze up while their kids were using it. I was thinking I would have to spend the time to get their files off and then reinstall XP, which also meant buying the restore disk since they didn't have those either and it was no longer possible to boot up and get into the machine to create the restore disks. I thought, well, I'm going to try Spinrite. Uh-huh. This, this could save me a lot of time. Plus, I've been wanting to try it. Anyway, since I started listening to Security Now, I ran Spinrite at level two against the drive and only took about three hours to finish. Restarted the computer and now he says boom, but I think that he means in a good way. Not that it, <laughs> one, do, one doesn't know with boom. Not, not that it exploded and boom, loaded right up normally. I was able to create restore disks from the computer's utilities in case it happened again and was able to give them their computer back the next day. Everybody won on this one. You have a happy customer. I'm happy since Spinrite made this an easy fix, and my friends are happy that they got their computer right back anyway. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And thank you, Brian, for sharing that. Very good. We're going to take a break. Then we have, what is it, 10 questions? Oh, and some good ones in there, yes. And some juicy questions for Steve <laughs> as we continue our listener feedback episode. But before we go much farther, I might mention uh, backing things up. Always nice to have a backup. Too bad you can't back up your router firmware. Now, that would be a nice thing. Then you could just restore it when bad things happen. You could do that with your files, of course. And, in fact, the best way to do it would be something that's automatic. So you don't have to think about it, right? If you have to remember to back up, we know you won't. Uh, continuous would be nice. That way it's always backing up. So you make a change to a file. Boom, you got a copy of it. And finally, of course, uh, backing up off-site because, you know, it's good to have a backup locally. I, I'm not against that, and I do it. But uh, if something really bad happens, fire, flood, disaster, you, and it's all sitting next to your computer, uh, somebody comes and steals everything, there go the backups along with the originals. So that's why backing up in the cloud automatically, continuously is so great. That's why I use and recommend Carbonite. Now, all of this, by the way, for less than 5 bucks a month per computer, $59 a year. For everything on your internal drive. If you have external drives, multiple computers, they've got plans for that too. So go to Carbonite.com and check it out. Costs you nothing to try. In fact, you don't even need a credit card. Just our offer code, security now. One word, security now. Two weeks free. After you've done that, you probably have your first backup set done, depending on your bandwidth, of course. And from then on, anytime you're online... Changes get backed up. You've always got a good set. By the way, it's, it's cloud storage, too. And I know we've talked about this. It's TNO cloud storage. You can use your own password. They don't know. Of course, it's 128-bit SSL. 
So even if you're backing up in an open Wi-Fi access spot, it's going to work. It's fine. It's completely secure. And you can access that data anytime. Uh, just log on to your Carbonite account on any computer. Still SSL, still secure. You can use uh, the smartphone apps they offer for free on all the main platforms. It really is a good solution and very affordable. $59 a year. Now, I got a special deal. You try it for free using the offer code security now. If you decide to buy it, and I do want you to try it free first, but if you decide to buy it, you use the offer code security now, you'll get 14 months for the price of 12. So it's an even more better deal. Mo better. Carbonite.com. Don't forget to use the offer code security now. I think you will like it. All right. I think you will like these questions, Steve Arino. You know, you the world them. is amazing, Leo. While you were talking, I just checked my Twitter feed and someone named Free or with the handle Free Jack, J A C in Canada, tweeted me the link to the Blackberry sounds that I missed from the past. Oh, so, you're kidding. You. <laughs> so he's listening Holy in real God. time. Yeah, because you didn't either. mention it on the show. This was a pre recording. Yeah. That you uh, that you forevermore wanted to keep your own sounds because once you'd lost your sounds. Well, and he I sent I, you the I Blackberry changed, sounds? Yeah, I changed Blackberries and the new Blackberry had different sounds than the old Blackberry. So I was like, oh, I missed those sounds because I had them all set up to respond to different things and I and I couldn't wow. find them. I couldn't get them off. So wow. thank you, Free Jack. I appreciate that. I'm gonna have to is he did he give a link that we can use? Yeah, I, it's the I might it's want to download app, those too. <laughs> Blackberry App World, Blackberry's 5.0 sounds. It's fun because the item description says, "Download the 5.0 Blackberry sounds heard around the world for years everywhere. Light speed, sonar, classic phone, wow. the entire set." These I'll probably recognize not, these. Oh, and he said these sounds are not preloaded in Blackberry six or higher. And the set is available free for all users to download here. No, you're right. Um, uh, you you will certainly recognize yeah. that because I was hearing other people's <laughs> phones doing that for years. It's like, oh, I know that sound. Well, I had a BlackBerry. I, in fact, I had Blackberries from the moment that they were just pagers, you know, just those big pagers with a keyboard, to the BlackBerry Curve. And then this thing called the iPhone came out, and I never used a BlackBerry again. And I have a feeling there's a lot of people like that. Yeah, except I'm still, you know, as you know. You don't use a BlackBerry, I, I, do you? Oh my God! That's what you're hearing. You know, go crazy like you know, squeaky toy. That's and all a BlackBerry. Yes, like it's a BlackBerry best. phone. My best of the best <laughs> communication device I've ever owned. Absolutely. What are you going to do when Rim goes out of business next month? I'll buy a few more and have them in storage. <laughs> I'll stick them in the refrigerator along with my my Palm Pilot. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Which BlackBerry are you using? The Curve. Uh, I've got something late model ninety six fifty or ninety. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a curve. Wow. It's got it's got the six forty by four eighty screen. Really yeah. nice high res screen, and and it's got the new touch little touch pad instead of the ball. I had to replace the ball, the little roller. I ball like on. the balls. Oh, that's the bold. Yeah. You have the bold. That's what you. Have. I had the bold. You're right. Yeah. I had the bold, and now I've got the curve. And no, oh. no, it is the. I think the you had the curve, and now you got the bold. I think the bold. I don't know. Does a bold come later, or is it a torch? <laughs> wow, you are an old-fashioned guy. I Oh, I want a keyboard. I do not want, I cannot stand typing on a touchscreen. I just, because Apple hasn't done it right. Uh, if I press a key and slide my finger off and it goes click, that means I pressed that key. Apple does not register it. They give me the sound, but they do not register the key. 
And I just, I, I guess the way I'm typing, I'm not lifting my finger off of it. I'm sliding it a little bit. Mm. And I, so I just, I, I can't stand it. I want, I want push buttons. Mm. I want buttons. I love my BlackBerry. It's mm. the best, the best <laughs> thing I've ever owned. That and my iPad. Those are my two devices. <laughs> Wait a minute. The iPad's the same as the iPhone. Oh, I don't type on the iPad. Oh, okay, only- okay. <laughs> so you mean when I hear those sounds like the uh, yabba dabba do and the you got me, that's a BlackBerry, not your computer. Oh no, the, uh, the yabba dabba do. Actually, it's going to be moving to my BlackBerry soon because I thought it'd be fun to have be able to walk around and have that happen. What a uh, character but, you are, Steve. But all the like, like the squeaky toy, and you know Jenny yeah. has a sound, and yeah, and yeah. so I know when she's sending me something. So oh, yeah, that's cute. Yeah, she likes her sound. Question number one. <laughs> I'm not going to, no comment. <clears throat> Steve, I, sometimes I feel like you're living in the 20th century. I'm, I'm quite comfortable there. I've got PDP-8 <laughs> behind me. He's using Windows and XP. I have, T, I have TiVos with the PowerPC that are byte swapped, TiVo Series 1s that are modified. Mark, Mark Thompson keeps bugging me to switch to Sage. No, but you know, you have a point because when something is perfect... Just because yeah. you, you make a newer one doesn't mean it's better. Oh, and frequently, I mean, we, we just talk about Cisco here with these this ridiculous... You don't router. have a rotary phone, do you? Well, not plugged in right now. <laughs> <laughs> Question one. Dustin B., Seattle, Washington. He wonders about password system setup. Greetings. Long-time Security Now listener, I've received a lot of advice over the years about personal password use. My questions today or actually how to best set up an account system, such as a small-time web application developer. I, I don't believe you've talked much about the system side of enforcing user security. Password requirements. While we know the benefits of having our own long, pseudo-random passwords, how far should an application go enforcing its users to use a secure password versus causing user frustration by forgetting their password? Is, for instance, more than five characters, including a number, enough? Does it have to be 12 characters with upper, lower, special characters, etc.? He's suggesting this is an invalid password message. I've noticed on failed login attempts, the message is generally username, password, combination, not found. I find this very frustrating as I use multiple usernames and passwords across services. I would like to know if the, if the issue is simply I'm thinking of a different username or if it's an old, different password. Is eliminating independent verification that the username was valid really needed to have a secure login system? So two questions. What do we need for passwords to be secure? What should we require? And secondly, why doesn't it tell me which is wrong, username or password? So, okay, my feeling is that I really like the the sort of what I would call the state of the art now, which is as your creating an account and for the first time defining your password this page that you're typing it into is using javascript on the fly to look at your password very much the way the my the my password haystacks page does to to rate the strength of your password so the idea is you know it's it gives anyone who's creating a password a a a sort of a, a built-in tutorial. They can choose if they want to have a weak password, but if they do, then they're doing so 
deliberately, you know, with foreknowledge of that. And so my sense is, I don't know that I like the idea. I mean, certainly maybe a set of a ridiculously low limit. You don't want a two-character password. So, you know, uh, Dustin says, how about greater than five with a number? I mean, so you could create whatever rules you want. The problem is users do chafe at specific rules. They certainly, I hear from people all the time who are annoyed when things say they can't have a password longer than X. And that's, as we know, frightening because it implies that the password is being stored in plain text in a limited size field in a database somewhere because if a password is being hashed, then it hashes to something always the same length, which is the the, the bit length of the hash, regardless of how long the user's password is. So, so for me, I, I like the idea of showing a meter where as they're typing and as they're using special characters and numbers and things, the, the, some JavaScript code is looking at the size of the alphabet that they have used so far times the length of the password that they have used or actually raised to the power of um, in order to give them a you know a little bar graph maybe change the color from red to orange to yellow to green you know like how safe is the password that you've used i like that because we're teaching at the same time and we're giving them responsibility we're not saying here's the requirements of of anything that you type in here and the other thing too is that i've noticed if you're going to have requirements put them right there don't wait until the password the user types in and submits fails your requirements to tell them what your requirements are. If you're going to have some, let us know before you make us put one in that's, you know, not going to work the first I know, time. I know. I hate that. Isn't that dumb? So like, annoying. <laughs> oh, you didn't have an, an... Almost everybody does this, by the way, Steve. It's very common. Oh, you know, you should have a number in there. Well, tell me for crying out loud. If you told me, I would have put a number in. It's not like the bad guys. Even Apple good. does this. I think Apple does this. They say, "Oh no, no, sorry, you have to have an uppercase letter." Well, if you just tell me ahead of time, yeah, then we'll do one. But I do oh, agree. No. We don't want to leak information about which of the two choices is wrong. I think that's a bad idea, right? Oh, uh, about part two of his question. Yeah. Oh, you haven't got to Abs- that yet. Yeah. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Uh, so he says in part two, he doesn't like the fact that if you put if you fill two fields in typically email address and password or username password, then submit them together. He doesn't like just getting a notification that something was wrong. He wants to be told, he's asking, is it less secure or worrisomely less secure to give the user more help? Absolutely. Yes, it is, because it allows one to be probed independently of the other. So that is absolute information disclosure, which is is not secure. I unfortunately, I mean, I understand the inconvenience, and but but D- Dustin, how are you not using one of the password managers like LastPass in order to solve the problem of multiple usernames and passwords on different sites? That's really the way to do it. So you know, I understand he's doing it from the implementer side now. The question is, I'm going to implement a system. What should I do? So I, you know, so he's asking, 
you know, can we tell them? It's like, uh, I, I don't think you no, should. And wouldn't, wouldn't nobody be. else does. Yep. So, and there's a reason. It's, it's not good because it allows you to probe one separately from the other. Fortunately, and that's something most sites do right. They don't, they don't say, oh, your user's name wrong, but your password's right. Correct. Right. And then lastly, by pure coincidence, I remembered three days ago, somebody tweeted me a link, actually as a, a devout listener to the podcast, on his resume, he has as one of his, as his self-certifications that he has listened to every Security Now podcast twice. <laughs> It takes at so, least two times, frankly. It's like so, the newsroom. <laughs> you got to listen twice. Yeah. So in this case, um, I just tweeted the link to it. He's a, a guy up in Canada. Uh, I can't quite remember the name now. It's .ca. Uh, although the link I tweeted is not that, is not his normal main website. But anyway, the point is that he has a an absolutely beautifully assembled page of here's how you process and store users' passwords. So, Dustin, go check my Twitter feed, twitter.com slash sggrc, and not far back, because I won't be tweeting much, I never do, you'll find a link to a page where I agree with everything there, actually, because it's what I've said. And Is this the on, crack station page? Yes, crackstation.net. Crack yeah. Yes. And cuz there he is a security now listener, very technical. His actually his site and his 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 uh his home site uh, there I I poked around there for a while. Lots of neat stuff. And he's uh you know, I mean he refers to the personal passwords page and everything, but it is all the advice on one page with, you know, the password-based key derivation function, hashes, hash tables, uh, rainbow tables. I mean, he just lays it all out. So in one page, there is the advice for how to set up a secure password system using all the best practices that we know of. And it's diffuse, D-E-F-U-S-E dot C-A. That's, that's the site. He, he that, actually, uh, this is his business, I think. It looks like, anyway, he has a... He a, looks like he's a good guy. He's a, secu- and definitely a security a, guy. Yeah. Definitely a listener. Yeah, yeah I he's, love that. He's... He's got our he's got our JavaScript uh, or zero JavaScript menuing system too because his menus worked for me with no JavaScript. <laughs> it's like ah, oh, it's always oh, fun. Oh, he's serious. He's serious. <laughs> he's serious about this article and code written by Diffuse Cybersecurity. Moving on to our next question, which comes to us from the Netherlands. I like this one, uh, and I'm going to butcher your name, so my apologies in advance. Anne Stellingwerf in Apfeldoom, Netherlands. She's at Ann St. Tweeted this question about buffer bloat. What would be the effect of one coddling router in a chain of non-coddling routers? Does position, whether it's at the home, the ISP, the internet at large, or the destination, matter? And you know, I love the question because I forgot to explicitly address it when we talked about coddling our routers. I guess it'd be germane because if your uh, internet service provider coddled, for instance. That would be protective, yes? Well, here's the problem. Um, what we, well, okay, it's a problem and it's a good thing. What we really want is this beautiful coddle active buffer management technology to be ubiquitous. We want it to be the way buffers, any buffer that exists is 
managed this way because the system doesn't have knobs and dials, doesn't need tuning. It is, it's, it's adaptive. It works across any speed of, of bandwidth. I mean, this is the answer to managing buffers. The problem is even one unmanaged buffer somewhere can cause a problem. So if it, because what we're, what we're, the problem is we want to minimize our, our delay. We want to minimize having a large, an oversized buffer filled and being stuck full because then it means that all the packets going have to wait through this long queue and are it and the 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 inherent rate throttling technologies that we have and and that work beautifully they're not getting the signaling that they need for slowing down in order to manage the buffers so technically even one non-coddled buffer somewhere between the two endpoints can cause a problem but practically the good news is the only big problem we have remember the reason typically that you're going to have an overloaded buffer is it's at a pinch point you are going from high bandwidth to low bandwidth you're going and and, and where that happens most often is from a very high speed local network which people have at home through the pinch point of their ISP out onto the internet. Once you get on the internet, you're dealing with big iron fast routers that are able to keep up with the bandwidth of their links. So you're not having buffer bloat problems there. Where the buffer bloat is occurring is at home. And that's the one router that you have control over. So the answer is, you know, yes, in theory, non-managed buffers anywhere can be a problem, but the, the, the need for management occurs only at the pinch point where you go from high bandwidth to low bandwidth because that's where you're going to get a backlog. And what you'd like then is that backlog to be minimized by having intelligent drops of packets that then signal the protocols to, to throttle themselves. That keeps everything interactive and you don't really lose much bandwidth. And th- you have that at home. So there's hope without needing the rest of the Internet to update itself. Yeah. Or your router to put spyware on it. <clears throat> yeah. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> Preston, Silicon Valley found a security vulnerability, but now what? Chief explainer. First to get it out of the way, listener, since May 2008... Went back and got caught up. Spin right owner, favorite podcast of all time, yada yada yada. I, you know, I let me interrupt you for one second. I'm, I, I, I me, everybody starts off their <laughs> they all their say posting. that, <laughs> and, and I, I have started to cut those out because I get a little embarrassed that like we're reading them endlessly every week. So I'm gonna just so don't I don't want anyone to be offended if they're. If that gets cut out from their no. from their que- question, I mean we we, uh, we reserve happy, the right to edit, just like a newspaper. We're happy for to be clarity and content. We're happy to be uh, told <laughs> yeah. that we're doing a good job, and and I appreciate that very much. Rush so, Limbaugh and, asks and, his listeners and, and, to say ditto, so we could just you could just say ditto at the beginning. <laughs> and and in fact, 
Preston's, uh, this is already long, but it was a lot longer. And so I wrote, <laughs> I already wrote to Preston and said, Preston, I really liked your question. I want to include it. And I'm, I'm paraphrasing it to keep the intent. So just, you know, because I, I just, I, I don't like to edit people's stuff because they, they sent it to me as they wanted it to be sent. So anyway. Okay. Continue. Sorry. I have no compunctions about editing people's stuff. <laughs> Uh, late 2010, I downloaded a copy of Cain and Abel and was playing with it on my home network, implementing a man-in-the-middle attack in SSL. And I discovered that I could see my PayPal credentials in the clear. That night, there was no sign of anyone else on the net knowing of it, but by the next morning, the news was out that others had seen it, too. I felt proud to have discovered something independently. But it raised the big question in my mind. What would I have done with that information if no one else had reported it? Now, fast forward to last month. I was at a conference on mobile banking where there was a talk given by Andrew Hoog, the CIO of Via Forensics, a security firm specializing in mobile apps. He told a story of how they found a vulnerability in the PayPal app where all traffic was being sent securely, but the app wasn't checking the identity of the certificate to make sure it belonged to PayPal. We're sending it securely. We just don't know who to. Yeah. Thus, a man-in-the-middle attack would be trivial. After his talk, I asked him if this happened in uh, late 2010, and he said it did. He said they found it about three weeks earlier, and he recounted the story that even though Via Forensics was an established security company, PayPal chose not to believe them at first and tried to ignore them. The only way to get them to look into it was to document it in step-by-step video. If enterprises treat a known security company like this, I wondered what steps a little guy could take if they found something like this in the future. I suppose the white hat thing to do would be contact the company. And by the way, not necessarily a good idea, and I'll tell you why not. Yeah, But what do you do if they don't listen? Just release it to the wild, sell it on the black market, do nothing, let someone (laughs) else take the credit? No, no, and no. I'll let Steve answer this one, but I, I'm champing at the bit. Steve and Leo, I love the show, especially the series on how a computer works, and I look forward to each new show every week. Sincerely, Preston in Silicon Valley. You go, Leo. <laughs> no, no, come on. You're baiting me now. Um, actually, I do know people. Uh, there's a guy uh, you probably all have heard of named uh, uh, Adrian Lamo. Yep. who uh, considered himself a white hat hacker and broke into a number of uh, places, including the New York Times, then offered up the information saying, look, you're insecure. I found an insecurity. And he was arrested. Yeah. Uh, our friend Randall Schwartz of uh, Floss Weekly claims he was doing the same thing. Uh, he was also arrested. So it's very, very risky. Randall got arrested? Randall has, uh, has wow. uh, yeah, Randall has a conviction, I believe. Wow. Um, yeah. So, so this yeah. isn't a very risky thing to do. It is, it is not a good idea if you're not an established security firm, uh, to just walk in the door of some company and say you got a flaw here. Because <laughs> yeah. they may Unfor- not take it like lightly. Yeah. What I what, what I would say is the way I would summarize that is unfortunately many companies do not react the way we think they should. Right. When they learn of a problem, they, they literally sad. shoot the messenger. Mm-hmm. When, you know, that's not the mature thing to do and and doesn't help them at all. So what should you do? Well, that's a great question. And I think the, the answer that I would have for Preston is when he says, what should one do? What, what I would do 
is I would contact not the victim company, but contact a reputable security firm. That's what I would suggest. Yep. Yes. And tell them, you're, you know, you're, you're losing the glory. You're not going to get, you know, any great prize anyway. Um, I mean, if your motives are to be a bad guy and you want to sell it on the black market, well, you know, good luck. I, I don't know how to do that, but, you know, maybe, you know, I mean, so, you know, these things are valuable. We know that. But if you're a listener to the podcast, hopefully a white hacked, hat hacker, and you're playing with Cain and Abel or whatever, <laughs> and you find a problem, I would say, yeah, turn it over to some to a legitimate security company. They'll, first of all, they'll verify it. And then they no doubt have established channels to large enterprises where they can say, you know, hey, and they're able to even say, we didn't find this ourselves. This was found by somebody else, just a random user of who your shall service. shall remain nameless. <laughs> yes. Who wanted us to yeah. notify Much you better. because he wanted to be taken seriously. I think that's the right protocol. Uh, just to, to complete the story so that people uh, don't have kind yeah. of some strange uh, thought about this. Randall was working for Intel, did some pen testing at Intel. Uh, he was charged uh, by the state of Oregon for compromising their security. Intel prosecuted. He was convicted on three felony counts with one reduced to a misdemeanor. But, and I'm very happy to say this for Randall, a few years ago, his arrest and conviction records were sealed, expunged, and he is not a felon any longer. So he can vote and all of that. And, uh, you know, he says this was just complete mistake. And, you know, I was just doing pen testing for Intel. I mean, I can't think of a nicer guy. I know. Randall's a sweetie. Now, it's more complicated. He was doing pen testing, a system he no longer administered. There's, there, it's a complicated story. It gets a little gray, maybe. It's a little gray. I don't think he was in any way hacking. Uh, Adrian, same story where, you know, you might say he did break into the New York Times. He changed some stuff on their servers. Nevertheless, it is a risky thing to do to go to a company and say, hey, you've got a problem. I found it. But uh, you go to a security firm and let them uh, do it. And generally speaking, they have channels. Not that they don't get ignored, as this guy did. Yeah. Um, I remember talking to Matt Conover at Woo Woo Security. They found a, a significant bug uh, with a major operating systems company, uh, told them about it. For months, the company never fixed it. This happens time and time again. Oh, well, and how many times have we talked about, about um, people notifying Microsoft and being really frustrated that well, six months later they still haven't addressed something that it, they have it, found. It, was I mean, it is very frustrating. <laughs> and uh, oh. finally, WooWoo released the... Uh, the, the uh, this is what often happens. These companies get frustrated. Six months in, they start seeing the exploit in the wild and they say, look, yep. we've got to release it now. And that's usually yep. what forces the company to finally fix it. And it's why often, you know, always be suspicious if there's a fix a week after you hear about an exploit. <laughs> Yes. And it usually means not they've the been working before, on it. Not the week before, <laughs> week the week after. after. It usually means they've been working on it. Yeah. Renee Mathiason, Copenhagen, Denmark. I love our international uh, listenership and viewership. Wonders about missing security frameworks for cloud computing. My question is, when everyone's talking about cloud this, cloud that, it's worrisome. No one's talking about security frameworks to support best practices for cloud computing. Basically, all vendors or suppliers can pretty much do whatever they find fit for their purpose. Uh, there isn't any security standard in this area. Every time I ask vendors for cloud services about which security standard they're using, they uh, either try to explain something ridiculous or just look back and blush. I got nothing. Is there something on its way or is just this just the Wild West? Thanks for putting a good show together week after week. Renee Copenhagen. 
Denmark. So it's absolutely the case that everybody's making this up as they go along. Yeah. And what what this question put me in mind of was something that I've always found interesting, Leo, and that is this is always the way it's been. I don't know what attorney first you know what attorney wrote the first software license agreement. But that first software license agreement said we have no responsibility, we the vendor, no responsibility whatsoever for what this software does, what you may do with it, how it behaves, how it behaves in the past, now, or in the future. And we're really not even sure where it came from, but you owe us money. And that's the way all software agreements have always been. It's this amazing ability that uh, that our, I want to say our industry, because I'm, of course, a software vendor, uh, the software business has always been able to get away so far with taking no responsibility whatsoever for what its product does, which just strikes me when I remember that fact as remarkable. You know, no, nobody else can do that. I mean, you've got <laughs> consumer protection and you've got all kinds of regulations and yeah, but it's always after the fact even in in that space right yeah that and that is a very good point it's one of the points actually that will be that paul vixie brings up that we'll be talking about next week is the the way everything seems to be done afterwards not not beforehand but it it is just an odd thing about this industry you know we it it seems to be powerful enough and confusing enough that no one really knows how to regulate it or control it so and it's moving so fast. I mean, the whole cloud thing has just sort of exploded after being possible for a while. It's, you know, the incredible lack of cost in mass storage has allowed all of this as, you know, it's what enables storage to suddenly all move limitlessly to the cloud. Yeah. And bandwidth. A bandwidth and the explosion of bandwidth has allowed the data to get there and back. And suddenly we're dealing with a new model that we didn't have just a few years ago. So yeah, it's all it's all new again. It's technology. It's continuously. We just new. throw it up against the wall, see what sticks, fix it on the, after the fact, and we'll say we're sorry if you didn't. Like it. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. I think about Dropbox and the fact that we found out kind of later that they actually had yep. the security keys, things like that. Um, yep. And it's just because there isn't a standard. I don't think you could really make a standard reasonably ahead of time. Yeah, uh, w- one thing that we're doing on this podcast by establishing things like TNO, trust no one, and pre-internet encryption, you know, we're saying, you know, although we're not part of any standards making body, we're we're helping to raise the awareness of this is clearly the way these things should be done. We have no ability to compel people to do it, but on the other hand, when we look closely as we have in our cloud computing series, you know, what are these companies doing? Are they TNO or not? You know, we're certainly helping to influence companies to, I mean, we're seeing the influence you of, of well, our, and, our and, pressure. And you did this before with uh, Shields Up, where you effectively yep. uh, convinced router companies that the best way to behave was in a stealth mode, which was something they didn't even, you coined the term. Yeah, that was my word. Yeah. So I think that that's appropriate. I mean, that's that's one of the ways this happens, which is watchdogs and people with an interest in this kind of uh, uh, at least propose, well, this is what we think should happen. And uh, and, and, uh, and point to, to instances where it's where not it happening. Right. And yep. then and then let, let, let the market decide. The market will tell you. Yep. Um, you know, I, I think this is not a broken system, but it is good to be aware of 
That's how technology works. And it's because it happens so fast. You don't want to govern. Look how long standards take. You don't want oh. a governing body setting standards before things happen. You want and to they try can so stuff. often be wrong. And they can do it wrong. Look at WEP. Yeah. John Cousins, Blackpool, England, wonders about password salting versus password strengthening. Hi, Leo and Steve. Big fan of the show. Blah, 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 blah. I'm currently, <laughs> that's what I'll say. From now on, not ditto, just blah, blah, blah. I'm currently in my last year of a cybersecurity master's at Lancaster in UK. I'm hoping to focus my efforts on securing virtual environments. Wow. Anyway, do you not feel that while salt can be used to further secure hashed passwords, specific password hash algorithms like PBKDF2 would be more effective in preventing situations occurring uh, like the LinkedIn breaches, John Cousins, Blackpool. You know, I forgot we had this question. This must be the reason that I tweeted the link to the diffuse.ca guy's page. That's about salting particularly, yeah. Exactly. And the use of so so he's saying, yes, you've got salt and and in fact this is the same thing that the 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 form what was it? Form works form I that was on a form, spring. form spring. I was you had me confused form, too. Form spring, form spring. Yes. right. Uh this is what they were doing is they were salting and using uh secure hashes. They were doing but, it right, right? Yes, but they were not going through a password-based key derivation function, this PBKDF2, which is to say doing it many times. Mm-hmm. It's one of the things, for example, the WPA, got, uh, the, the successor to WEP, which you just reminded us was so badly broken and, and poorly done, the WPA spec, remember, has a 4096 iteration PBKDF2 where they take the user's password and the SSID using the SSID as the hash essentially and iterate on that 4096 times to create the final result. So John, yes, you know, you essentially go to again twitter.com/sggrc, get that link and there's the answer. That guy did a beautiful page that just lays it all out. John Hart, I'm sorry, Jim Hart's in New Brunswick, New Jersey wonders and worries about a backdoor to Symantec's PGP whole disk encryption. I use OS X Snow Leopard, he says, and utilize whole disk encryption via Symantec PGP. I've been told this implementation of PGP has government backdoors to decrypt data. Any insight as to, is, is this so? And if so, any recommendations on an alternative? Thanks for the great podcast and helping to keep my drives running with Spinrite. Can't wait for the next version. Backdoor in Symantec's PGP. <laughs> Yeah, I just had to say no. Um, I, I mean, it, I don't... It was open source. I, I don't know if it is still. But. Yeah, I don't know either way. But this, it feels... Of course, we don't know who's told him this. He says, I've been told that this implementation of PGP has government backdoors. That Doesn't that sound like something that some weenie posts on a forum somewhere? Sounds like something and, Adam Curry would say. <laughs> yeah, it just... Uh, it we don't like, know. Okay. I mean, it's an easy thing to, to say... Yes, and I would be very surprised. But to answer your question, Jim, TrueCrypt. TrueCrypt, we know, is open source. It's cross-platform. Those guys have nailed it. I've, I've, I've lost track of what version it's at. It's at 6 or 7 or something. Um, it's, it, is, it solves the problem. So if you have any 
concern at all that there might be something funky going on. I absolutely wouldn't think so at all. It's I, I just to me that that they oh yeah it's you know that has a back door. It sounds like something you read where you know script kiddies are posting right. nonsense on on forums. It's like okay fine. I mean I I see that all that kind of nonsense all the time. But True Crypt is your friend and end of story. <laughs> They've nailed it. True Crypt is your friend. <laughs> but you know it's funny because you've come around. Because I've said for a long time, the only encryption to trust is open source. It's the only way you can be absolutely sure. Uh, and I know that there's some commercial encryption uh, technologies you've talked about in the past. But I think we, we're in agreement now. That, you know, if it's not open source, you don't know. And True. I would say, for instance, one response to this would be, well, Apple's got full disk encryption, File Vault. You could use that. But again, you don't know and no one can know uh, what's in there. Yeah, what I, I guess what I like is sort of the hybrid where someone, and I'm seeing this more and more, someone says, we're selling a product that incorporates encryption and we need this to be ours. But here's the protocol and here's an open source implementation that demonstrates that this is what we're doing. Yeah, but so, you can uh, still have a backdoor tacked on to that open source implementation. I want to see all the code. I want to be, in fact, if you really care, you want to be able to take the code, look at it, then compile it and use that. What that does say then is that you really can't do commercial crypto. That's my feeling. Which is which is to say that crypto has to just be given away. It has to ha right. ha that has to be not be where your value is added. That's where I've always uh, f uh, believed that. Yeah. <sighs> Let's move on. Patrick McCauley, Guelph, Ontario, Canada, wonders about bandwidth. And whether it's best to take the top measure, this is what you recommended last week, not take the average, but take the highest, that's the max you can get. Uh, he says he just listened to that, uh, responding to one question about checking your online speed. You said we should test our speed several times, then take the highest reading as our actual uh, bandwidth. But I'm wondering, couldn't this be misleading for people who get to the Internet by a cable connection? Here in Canada, I use Rogers Cable. And they advertise Speed Boost as a benefit. Comcast in the U.S. has the same thing under a different name. That's absolutely true. The idea is that when you first connect to a site, for instance, Netflix, they'll boost your speed well beyond your normal bandwidth for the first minute or two uh, if that bandwidth's available. This is great to speed up the initial buffering on Netflix, but it can give a very misleading reading if you use a site like speedtest.net to check your speed. If your ISP provides this feature, would you not be better off taking the average of several readings as more accurate value for your bandwidth? Well, okay, so here's the problem. We have a situation where our bandwidth is not constant. And the question then is, what is it that we're trying to measure? Right. Do we want to measure the speed boost effect or do we want to measure the post-speed boost, uh, you know, nominal speed if we take the average, then we've sort of got neither of those. We've got some that was boosted, and, and so our number will be skewed high from the average. So, so I guess I don't know what to suggest except to be aware of what's going on. Um, maybe, um, you know, if there's any way to, to look at the speed initially and separately after speed boost has been removed, I, I, I guess, is. you know, sort of. Because oh, okay, speed cool. boost after the first couple of minutes doesn't do anything. It's perfect. It settles down. Perfect. In, 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 in which case, you'll have to be extra clever. The reason 
The reason I said you want the you want to take the highest measure over several different tests, and you would still want to do that even if you have speed boost, is that your arguably your bandwidth is the best that your line that your connection can deliver, rather than its current performance, which may right. be weighted down. You know, like I noticed, like my cable modem slows down when people start getting home from work, for example, in a residential area because they just they turn their computers on and they and they start doing whatever right. they right. you know they want to do. So it it certainly depends upon time of day and you know and the nature of your connection. A DSL connection probably doesn't have that same characteristic. So. You know, if you care about this, get to know by doing lots of tests and you'll you'll begin to see patterns and you'll understand. But but keep in mind that you probably want to think in terms of at any given time, what is the highest you can get in those in those circumstances? Because right. I think that's your real bandwidth, your right. actual bandwidth. Right. Yeah, it's really two numbers. If you have speed boost, it's two numbers. It's what that yeah. speed boost peak is and then what your sustained yes. throughput is. Right. And uh, right. it's good to know both. I mean, speed boost is valuable. Uh, you know, as he says, it fills the buffers fast. Uh, if you're just doing web pages, it makes web pages pop up because it's, it's you know, in Comcast implementation, uh, it's the first 25 megabytes. Well, that's going to be plenty for a web page to load very quickly. Yeah. Matt's sentiments from... Auburn, Washington, were echoed by so many listeners. Steve, I know this is a heated topic, but since everyone else is giving you their opinion, I wanted to as well. For anyone who complains that episodes are too long, why don't they just hit the stop button? Those of us who want to hear more but can't because there is no more don't have an option. It's sad every time you have to stop before finishing your questions or can't go on to as much depth as you want to. Believe me, tens of thousands of people listen to you because you have that depth to go into, which we can't find anywhere else. So I say, tis better to have more and let people stop when they want to than not to have enough. I can't begin to understand why people would spend the time to write you to shorten your podcast when the pause button is right there. Thanks for listening and keep on talking, Matt. <laughs> so I just wanted to acknowledge all the people that have written. This was one one question or statement from among so many that I found in the mailbag when the when we were discussing this. So I just wanted to thank everybody. And I, you know, I think Matt's probably right. I think, you know, I think we found about the right formula. Formula. You and I, Leo, nominally have two hours. We 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 screw around and and talk a little bit and get recording. You know, maybe about twenty minutes in. And so we're generally, uh, you know, and then we typically I sort of pace the things i've got my eye on the clock we got 10 minutes to go right now we got two questions left so i'm you know we're right on target for a greater than 90 minute podcast which should you know it's funny too because some people have said you know i remember when those were 30 minutes and it's like well, so we're now briefly, I mean, we're, very briefly i yeah, you know i don't i don't actually want to uh, say it that way uh, as the owner of this network let me say something a little different i do appreciate the feedback about podcast length um, we always are paying attention to what people tell us. And um, he, of course, has the right point. You could listen to less, but I don't think people are saying that. I'm thinking they're saying uh, not that they want to cut you off or that they want you to be less than thorough, but that they don't need the podcast to be that long or whatever. And I listen to that. Whether you listen to it or not is another matter, but I listen to it. In fact, it is too long right now. 
because um, I'd like to get these done a little quicker. <laughs> um, and there's a number of reasons. One is we have a schedule. The other is I'd like to eat lunch before Twig. Um, but the, but and but also there's also the issue of well how much material do you want to put in a podcast how much content do you really need in a podcast mm. I don't ever and we never will uh, want to shorten stuff as broadcast media does just because it's got to be six minutes uh, the topic should go as long as it needs to go that's absolutely the case yay uh, but but then there's other issues as well and I certainly don't uh, believe me I love to hear from people and if they ha- if it's your opinion is too long I will listen to it. Absolutely, as well as uh, his opinion that it's not long enough or whatever, or it's just right, or hit the pause button if you don't like it. Anthony in Melbourne, Australia, shocked Steve with this news. Steve, on uh, Security Now 358, a listener was unimpressed with Microsoft's recommendation to close down all browser windows to clear all logon sessions, etc. <laughs> it's kind of s- surprising. Uh, this may be true for Internet Explorer, but ever since Firefox 4, all sessions, including SSL, are saved. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, I didn't either. Yeah. Try it for yourself. Close down Firefox, then reopen it. Hit History and click Restore Previous Session. You should now be logged in to all your previous site sessions. What? Yes. I had a difficult time finding out how to disable this and eventually came across a page on Mozilla Zine. It's a long URL. It's uh, KB, knowledge-based. Actually, if you search for browser session store privacy level in Mozilla Zine's knowledge base, that should probably be sufficient. I hope you can mention this to Security Now listeners. Okay, now, I was very yeah, surprised. Wow. What we're talking about, and we've discussed this many times, are session cookies. When you log on to a facility, you are given a cookie... Hopefully, this has been done over SSL, and the cookie is flagged with a secure flag, so it will never be transmitted unless you have an SSL connection. Your browser says, before it adds the cookie to its query headers, is this secure? And if the the cookie is flagged secure, it will not include that cookie unless it's going to the intended... the intended domain that the, that the cookie is set for and the the connection is secure. That guarantees that men in the middle, nobody snoo- sniffing or snooping can see what the cookie is because once you've logged in, that is your token that keeps you logged in as you move through the site, as you post, as you browse, as you do whatever. It, you, you keep reasserting your authentication to the server um, because... As we know, web-based surfing is 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 this this sort of event-based. It, it's individual queries and replies. All of this means the, it's called a session cookie because when your session is over, mm-hmm. it's gone, mm-hmm. and it's always been the case that it's not stored on the hard disk. It's kept in RAM. As the session, and when you close the window, when you close the browser, that's it. It turns out only IE honors that. What happened apparently when they went from Firefox 3.6, which is where that ended, into this new era that began with 4 and has rapidly shot to 13.0.1, which is where we are now, they deliberately changed that now i immediately changed it back i just don't like that what that meant and i i proved it to myself um 
I have a way of using session cookies on GRC that I where I assumed that shutting the browser down lost the session cookie. So I logged in with a session cookie, and I mean, this is my code. I know what the cookie is. I can see it, and I shut down Firefox, fired it back up, and it still authenticated me, which is like, whoa, not the way it's always been, i.e., forgot me. I did the same thing on Internet Explorer, shut it down, came back up, you know, relaunched it. It's, it. it said, I have no idea who you are, and Google remembered me also so so i can see where this limits customer service complaints and so forth and where it's like okay um you know this will just be easier for users and it's one thing if you click the checkbox of like you know keep like ebay has keep me logged in for the day or whatever or you know you know and many sites allow you to manually say I want to stay logged in. Normally, that checkbox is off by default. Well, what this means is you're staying logged in anyway. So we all know, or, or longtime Firefox users know, in the URL bar, in where you normally type in HTTP colon slash slash so forth, you can put about colon config. Hit enter, and that takes you to an amazing you know, depth of optional configuration stuff. And there's a search bar in there on that page, which you need. If you type session store, S-E-S-S-I-O-N-S-T-O-R-E, all one word into the about colon config page of Firefox, you'll still then see a, I don't know, maybe 20 items. One of them there is privacy underscore level. And I think I recall it defaults to zero. You need to change it to two. I have. When you do, then Firefox behaves the way I think it should, which is closing it actually does cause it to release all of its session cookies. The way IE still works, but no longer the way Firefox or Chrome work, which really did catch me you know, by surprise. Yeah, because it, uh, as you say, it's a session cookie. It should be yeah. only for a session. Yeah, that's I mean, the way that's it was the designed. expectation. Yeah, and these these guys decided differently. I understand why like, they did it because maybe people want to, you know, yep. not have to log well, in again. Actually, in I followed back. I backtracked why this happened. It's because of crashing. It used to cra- Firefox uh, would crash. Of course, people- so you restore your session after a crash. That's it. Yep. You're right. I get it. Yep. Yeah. And unfortunately, that, yeah, it, it also effect. restores it after a graceful shutdown, right. which I don't think it should. Yeah, you could change that. You could say, hey, a shutdown erases that. It doesn't save it. Yeah, so, there is an option, actually, among those settings for right. doing that, where so a that crash will still restore it, but a, a shutdown won't. So that should be the fault. Randy Hammock, KC6HUR in Sun Valley. Has our last question and our MacBook Pro camera tip of the week. You do you you tape over your cameras on your laptops? <laughs> uh, uh, I don't think I have any cameras on my laptops. Oh, They're old. <laughs> Another reason to go with old yeah, stuff. Like, yeah, right. <laughs> Regarding placing a sticker over the camera for privacy, causing the light sensor not to function for keyboard backlight and screen brightness control. Not true. Did we say it was? 
Yeah, we did. Uh, I discovered or a listener. We, we were a, questioning a, whether it did. A listener did. Yes. Yeah. I discovered the light sensor is located in the place where the green camera active LED is. If I place my finger over the camera, nothing happens. If I place my finger over the LED holes, and by the way, this is specific. He says to his MacBook Pro, it's probably different for different computers. The keyboard light comes on, the screen dims. Older MacBook Pros have the light sensor in the speaker grills. Both of them, if you place a hand over both speaker grills, not just one, keyboard lights come on and the screen dims. So, go ahead, cover the camera for privacy and you'll retain keyboard and screen auto light control. Thought your listeners would find this useful. And, and I do because cameras spying on people have been a recurring problem that, you know, we keep covering. There's, you know, spyware turns cameras on, even, you know, babysitting software that schools use, as we've extensively covered, turns the cameras on and spies on their students without their knowledge. So I, I really endorse the idea of just taking a little, take a little square of the sticky part of a post-it note, a 3M post-it note, and just stick it over the camera. If it's not something you use all the time, just cover it up because that seems like it's simple and it's, you know, it's a physical shutter. And now, you know, do not cover the little green light because you'd like your, your light sensor to still work. And then you've got a solution. Old school. <laughs> Steve Gibson, he is old school. He's the definition of old school. Yeah. XP, Blackberries, <laughs> PDP-8s. You can uh, hear this show every Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 1800 UTC. If you want to listen live, we'd love it if you do, because I pay attention to the chat room and, and all of that. Uh, and so it's a great kind of feedback mechanism. And actually, Leo, there is 20 minutes of fun that, that are oh, yeah. the... the Podcast oh, yeah. listeners don't get it, unfortunately. Yeah, like, for instance, I try to keep the diet uh, information out of the show. <laughs> we do that. We talk about our diets before the show. Things Whether like you're that. floating on the surface or not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can uh, get this show. Sweeteners. Yes, exactly. Yeah. You get this show, not that part, but you get the rest of it on demand after the fact uh, via our website or Steve's. Now, Steve has an unusual version. He has a 16-kilobit audio version for people with severe bandwidth impairment um, or who just cheapskates. Uh, you can also get a transcript. And, you know, we hear a lot. You, you just talked about somebody who listens twice. You know what? You could listen once and read the transcript. That would be a good way to do it, too. The transcript is a great way to kind of follow along. All that's at his site, grc.com, along with Spinrite, the world's best hard drive and maintenance utility. All the freebies he gives away all the time, grc.com. And if you want to ask a question for our next Q&A episode, there's a feedback form there you should use. It's grc.com slash feedback. Steve is on the Twitter at sggrc. He's also got a feed for the very low-carb contingent, sgvlc. Steve, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. It is always a pleasure, and we're going to have a great podcast next week with uh, I'm uh, news from Paul Vixie and yeah. DNS Changer and the non-event. But uh, he may, I, I read what he wrote, and it was so good. I'm going to share it with our listeners, then we'll discuss it. I so. want to hear his defense of what I thought was an indefensible actions on the part of the FBI. But if, Vix, if Paul Vixie, the, fa the father of DNS, says it's okay, well, that's different. I don't think that's where really where – I mean, he was he was called in because – he was someone with such a reputation, and the FBI wanted to make sure it was done right. And, you know, he did help them un, uh, get it done right. So yeah. we've got a great podcast next week, and I've always enjoyed this. So thank you, Steven. Thank you all Talk for joining us. We'll see you next week on Security Now. Security Now.